Turn with me to the 49th chapter of Genesis. And let us stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 49, the entire chapter. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not, not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce. And their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. On the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are like wine, and his teeth white like milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships. And his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his peoples as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose, he gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph 
and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he enlarged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. They they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You may be seated. This is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. It's poetry on purpose. So you would love reading it and love thinking about the various figures of speech that are in it. And this great chapter, understand the context now, where we are in the life of Joseph. Joseph has led his 12 brothers to Christ. You remember they depra- uh, uh, betrayed him when he was a boy, uh, sold him into slavery. But from that humiliation, Joseph rose to be one of the most powerful men in the world for the purpose of saving the people of God from the immorality of the Canaanites. So they moved to Egypt because it was the only place in all the world where there was food. There was a global famine. There wasn't food anywhere else in the world. The only place you could go to get food was at the feet of Joseph the Hebrew. And he was the number two man in all of Egypt. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. They didn't recognize him because he was just a boy the last time he saw him. He recognized him. And so he was determined that he was going to see if they're changed men. He was going to put them through a series of tests to see if their character changed or see if they were like they were back when they sold him into slavery. Uh, And so he was determined that he would lead them to repentance and to renewed faith so the whole family could be united again in the covenant. And we've studied that chapter after chapter and seen that by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Joseph succeeded. And now he's, he's talking about all these 12 sons, and he's talking about virtuous men. Understand, when we read some of these figures of speech, it might be a little confusing. But he's talking about virtuous men now, men that were not like they were when they sold him into bondage. These men have repented of their sins, and their characters have changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now they've come to the end of Jacob's life. Jacob's their daddy. They've come to the end of Jacob's life, and Jacob, the old uh, patriarch and prophet, was now prophesying what would take place in their lives in the future. Now understand what prophecy is. Remember from last week, Prophecy is not just predicting the future. Prophecy from God is the creation of the future. And God's prophets prophesy the future. That prophesying causes the future to happen the way the prophecy said. And that's how powerful the word of God is that all of history is moved along by God's powerful word. 
uh, Jacob's making prophecies about all of his son's lives. It's not because he studied these things before this day came. It's not before he meditated seriously on what he was going to say about all of his sons. He didn't know what he was going to say until he said it because it didn't originate with him. It originated with the living God himself. Every word he spoke in Genesis 14, uh, 49 was a word from the living God for the purpose of shaping and giving content to the future of the people of God. If you notice, we entitled this sermon, Jesus Christ and the Future of Mankind, because that's what it's about. The history of mankind from the day this chapter was spoken to the second coming of Christ at the end of the world is contained in this chapter. This is the chapter that determines what happens to you as a child of God throughout your future. It is a chapter that foretells and creates what's going to take place in the life of the church of God in this world and to the cultures that we have to face. So Jacob has got all his sons together. He can barely sit up in bed. He's so weak, so old. Remember, he's 147 years old. So he has all his sons here before him. And he's going to prophesy about the future of the world in two phases of the history of the world. He's going to prophesy what happens in his 12 sons' lives from the day he speaks these words to the birth of Jesus. Okay? That he's prophesying what's going to take place in the lives of his sons from the moment he speaks these words to the birth of Jesus. And at the same time, he's prophesying what's going to happen to the people of God from the birth of Jesus to the very end of the world of the second coming of Christ. Okay, keep those things straight. He's going to prophesy what's going to happen to his 12 sons, and that's what the rest of the Old Testament's about. The rest of the Old Testament is about the children of, of, uh, of Jacob. And then, starting with the birth of Christ, it expands to include the entire church of God throughout the world, throughout history. That's you. All right, let's look and see what he prophesied. Verse 1 of chapter 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. I'm sure he's just as anxious as they are to find out because he's not making this up as he goes along. What he hears, he speaks. Verse 2, Gather together and hear, old sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, so he's, now he's going down the list. Reuben was his oldest son. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. Still not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then he defiled you. You defiled it. He went up to my couch. Starting out so well. You're getting excited. He's going to be a great guy. Reuben, uh, at this time, was a great man, a godly man, a virtuous man. He had repented of all of his hideous sins that he committed many years before. But there was a sin that he committed that showed what his character used to be, though what it's not anymore, and what kept him from a place of leadership in the church of God and in the family of Jacob. He said, Reuben, you're a strong man. You're a man of preeminence. 
but you're as untrustworthy as water. That you're tossed to and fro by all your various desires and all your various impulses. And you, you, now that's not true of you. But when you were a young man, you made no effort whatsoever to control the passions and drives and desires of your heart. You're a godly man now, Reuben, but there's one thing I can't get out of my mind. You slept with my wife. Not your mother, but you slept with my wife. Not forgetting that, because God's going to plan your life in the light of that. You should be the leader. You should be the number one. You should be preeminent in all things. But because your passions are uncontrolled, you will not be in that place of power in the future. And as a result, he wasn't, nor his descendants. There was no judges. There were no kings. There were no prophets that came from Reuben's family. Then there's two other brothers. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, Simeon, you and Levi are godly men. You repented of your early days. But there's something that happened in your early days that you're still going to suffer the consequences of. A man raped your sister. And out of pure anger and pure vengeance, you killed every man in that city with the sword. Every man. Genocide. You, are, you were cruel men. Violent men. Therefore, I don't want my name, my glory, to be identified with you. First be your anger. I will disperse you in Jacob. In other words, in this uh, 49, he's distributing land too. The various sons of Israel get various plots of real estate in certain areas. But he's saying, Simeon and Levi, you get no land. You're going to be propertyless in the promised land because you were men of violence and you were men of cruelty. He also condemns them because they were cruel to animals. Not only murderous in killing men, out of, not out of a sense of justice, but out of pure anger and vengeance and destroyed, they lamed the cattle. So God says, I'm not giving you to any property in the land of Canaan. Simeon just kept getting smaller and smaller as the years went on. There were a couple sentences in the book of Numbers, and the second sentence of, of Simeon was smaller than the first. So Simeon just diminished in population and eventually was absorbed in the tribe of Judah. But it was a great blessing for all of Israel, for Levi not to have any property and for the descendants of Levi to be scattered all over the land of Canaan and not be confined to one particular area because the descendants of Levi were the priests. They were the high priests. They were the mediators. They were the go-betweens. They were the ones who taught Israel. 
And so everywhere in the whole land of Canaan, wherever there was the people of, of God, wherever the church of God was, there was a Levite there to teach them and to train them. There was light in every area of this dark country. And also, every time any of the sons and descendants of Jacob saw one of these Levites, they thought of the gospel. Because what were these Levites doing? Slaughtering animals, making sacrifices, wearing certain kind of clothes that identified them as a priest. So every time they saw any of these descendants of Levite reminded them of the gospel and ministry is the gospel. And all over the land they taught. They had synagogues. They taught adults. They taught children all over the land of Canaan. So what was a curse to Simeon and Levi uh, was a blessing to the whole land of Israel. They didn't get any property. And so they went everywhere teaching and preaching to the people of God. Now there's a great lesson here for homeschoolers. There are some, I believe in homeschools. I don't believe they're optional. I believe parents are to teach their children at home. But there are some radical homeschoolers out there who believe that you're wasting your children if you send them to a Christian school. They do not believe in any kind of institutional education, even if it's godly and Christian. That the only kind of education that we should give our children is homeschooling. Terrible viewpoint, because in Israel, not only was there homeschooling by the fathers in the homes, but there was institutional education by the Levites all over the land synagogues. They would supplement the education that was going on in home. So don't be afraid of using institutional education if it's Christian. And there are some schools out there that are built just to supplement homeschooling uh, teaching. And so find, don't just limit yourself to homeschooling. It's homeschooling and using whatever other institutional type of training that is godly and is spiritual and that uh, can be used with your children. But that's neither here nor there. The point is that these Levites had no property so that they could be the teachers and preachers of Israel all over the land. Now, we come to verse 8. This is a great paragraph. Great stanza. Judah. Reuben was the firstborn, then Simeon and Levi took his place, and they had to step aside. Now we got Judah. Judah takes the place of leadership in the sons of Israel. The rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, the leader of the sons of Jacob, of the 12 tribes of Israel, was Judah, even to the point of after the northern and the southern kingdom split, the southern kingdom was called Judah. And between the Testaments, when the Maccabees, the family of the Maccabees were fighting the Greeks, the name of Judah was Judea in Jesus' day, named for Judah. So Judah now was the leader of the people of God. Let's see what God says about his future. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, 
and his robes in the blood of grapes. The New American Standard mistranslates verse 12. Uh, You can see they're not sure about it, but anyway. Verse 12, they say, his eyes are dull from wine. That means he's drunk. He didn't get drunk. So what is it saying? There's a footnote over there. He says his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So here you have a prophecy about one of Judah's descendants that it says in verse 8, someday of all of his brothers shall praise him, all of his brothers shall give him honor, his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies, that is, He'll seize his enemies by the throat and choke them to death. That is, he gets the victory over all of his enemies. So this descendant of Judah, his brothers praise him, the whole people of God praise him. He defeats all of his enemies. They don't have any chance against him. All of the father's sons will bow down before him. Now, who's it talking about? Judah is a lion's whelp. A strong lion. A lion that has no threats. Nobody's a danger to him. He's so powerful. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? So Judah, there's going to be a descendant of yours that everybody in the church is going to bow down to. He's going to seize all his enemies by the throat and destroy them all. And he's going to be like a young lion. Revelation 5.5. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we see very specifically now that we're talking about Judah's ancestor. Judah was the great-great-great-granddaddy of the lion of the tribe of Judah who cannot be defeated by his enemies. Don't you love the last line in the lion, witch, in the wardrobe? Where Aslan, the lion has torn the jugular vein out of the ice queen who is the great danger to the little children. And he's walking triumphantly, Aslan the lion is walking triumphantly down the beach. And the little girl wants to pat him. And uh, she's told, you don't want to pat Aslan. Paraphrase, and she said, Well, why not? Isn't he good? He said, Oh, yes, he's good, but he's not tamed. You don't pat the king of the animal world. So here you have a symbol in C.S. Lewis's book of the greatness and the power of this lion of the tribe of Judah. Now notice what his prophecies prophesies about him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. First of all, you've got to understand what a scepter is. A scepter is a golden rod so feet long that is a symbol of rule symbol of of, uh, legitimate authority symbol of governance did you watch the coronation of Charles when King Charles was coronated they put he had a scepter golden scepter in each hand symbolizing rule and governance and authority. 
And so Jacob says to Judah, Judah, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this lion who's going to destroy all his enemies and seize his enemies by the throat, this lion that all of his brothers are going to praise, this symbol of rule and authority, this scepter shall not depart from your family, Judah, nor this ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In Hebrew, the word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. Now, rather than saying Shiloh, let's say what it means. The one to whom it belongs. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. Who you reckon that is? The coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, before whom every nation tribe, language, people shall bow, who sits at the right hand of God and all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. That's who we're talking about. The great, 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 great grandson of Judah himself. The king of kings and lord of lords. Look at the next verse. And to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the peoples. What a prophecy. Jesus has all authority, all power, controls everything. He's the ruler, the kings of the earth. And the effect of that authority is that all of the peoples of the earth will bow in obedience to him. It doesn't just say people the obedience of the people. But the obedience of the peoples, all different kinds of people and races and tribes and nationality and tongues, they shall bow before this king. Now, we don't see many people doing that today, do we? We don't even see many people in the church doing that today. So all over the world, people bow to everything, but hardly anybody bows to Jesus. That's not the way it's going to be forever. Remember this is a prophecy of what's going to happen between Jesus' birth and the end of the world. That during that time, more and more peoples and nations and nationalities and races will bow in submission and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You only see a few now because you live in a short little space in the history of mankind. But as history goes on, Providence will cause more and more and more people to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and in obedience until when you look around in your neighborhood and in your family, you will see most of the people you know bowing in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now most of the people you know don't. But you just live, remember. You just live in a teeny little piece of a history that's going to be flowing for who knows how many more generations. <clears throat> Jacob said, I'm going to tell you about things that are going to happen. If these things don't happen, God's a liar. I'm not making up these things. I don't know anything about them until I speak them because it's God that puts the words in my mouth. And so if you think you live in a world the way many Christians do today, where the world's just getting worse and worse and worse, and we're going downhill every day, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you have never read Genesis 49. Because we live in a world that's not controlled by communists or Marxists or humanists or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists 
We live in a world that is controlled every day by the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that happens, happens the way he wants it to happen. His word causes everything that happens in your life to happen the way it does. Causes. He doesn't just let it happen. Jesus never let anything happen. Jesus causes everything to happen. He doesn't just allow it and give permission for it to happen. He is the sovereign Lord who causes it to happen. What is his goal? His goal is that someday every tribe and tongue and language and race and people upon the face of this planet will bow before his lordship and will believe in him as their Lord and his Lord and Savior. So that's the effect. That's the goal of Christ's lordship over everything. The next up, figures of speech. Interesting, hard to figure out unless you know that culture. Verse 11, and he ties his fold, his young, young uh, donkey, to the grapevine and his donkey's colt to the choice grapevines, washes his garments in wine, washes his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You know what the number one industry was in those days in the land of Canaan? Grapes. That means wine. And if you wanted to get in a business where you could make a lot of money, get in the grape business. Because it was number one industry in Canaan in the life of, of Jesus. And it says that you're just going to be so, uh, grapes are going to be so abundant and grapevines so abundant and so plentiful that the people that live there are going to do everything with them. They're going to uh, tie their donkeys to these grapevines. Who, who would have thought of that? You don't tie your donkey to a grapevine. You want your grapevines to be perfect. You don't want anything to break the branches off them. But there's coming a day in which the grapevines are so plentiful that you can tie your uh, donkey to a grapevine, and if it breaks off, that's okay. There'll be so many grapes someday, so many grapes among the people of God that they'll wash their clothes in wine. And if they're tired of white shirts, they'll particularly wash their white shirts in, the, in wine. So it'll be purple. Who'd have thought of washing your clothes in the juice of grapes? Only if you have so many grapes, you don't know what to do with them all. We're talking here about uh, abundant, excessive prosperity is what we're talking about. That's like making bullets out of gold instead of lead. So that when you shoot your gun, you got a gold bullet in it. You got so much gold, I might as well make some bullets out of my gold. <laughs> That's the way it was with grapes. That's how prosperous God's people are going to be someday as the world is converted more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. Prosperity shall be excessive and shall abound among the people of God. And then, his eyes are, I remember what it said. Well, this is incorrect. His eyes are dull from wine. He didn't get drunk. His eyes are darker than wine. And his teeth whiter than milk. If you lived in the Middle East, some of the marks of beauty, and attraction. 
the wine dark eyes. That's what you look for in a woman. That's what you look for in a man. A sign of attraction, a sign of beauty, a sign of strength, a sign of health. Eyes darker than wine. Teeth whiter than milk. So all of these are figurative descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom God has given all authority in heaven and earth. He's glorious. So that's one of my favorite passages. Let's go back and rehearse it again. Someday the great, 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 great grandson of Judah, man that actually lived shall be praised and loved by the entire church of God. He shall seize all his enemies from the throat, and not one of his enemies have a chance, has a chance against him. He's a lion, powerful, strong, no rivals. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has the right to rule because God gave it to him. Because he rules, he uses his lordship to convert all the peoples and tribes and nations and races on the face of this earth. Now, don't think that when you get to heaven, there's going to be just a small little group of us. The frozen chosen, the we, we, uh, what, what was it called? The we something, I don't know. But uh, there's not just going to be a little group of us in heaven where the vast majority of people are going to be in hell. There's no biblical basis to believe that whatsoever. What the Bible teaches is there's going to be the vast majority of this world in heaven and an insignificant minority in hell. It's going to be filled with people. Now, you know what I've learned through the years? That white people can be a little racist if they're not careful. Because the average white person thinks that when we get to heaven, we're all white. Uh, have you ever seen any black angels? <laughs> have you ever seen any red or yellow angels? All of the people that you see that are in heaven are white. I guarantee you that's not the case. I guarantee you in heaven, there'll be black people, white people, yellow people. You know why? Because God loves pizzazz. <laughs> God loves color. He loves variety. And there's going to be a large diversity of colors and races and tribes of people in heaven. And there will be such prosperity among the people of God. Excessive. The people of Satan, they will be starving. Just like the people in the world in Joseph's day starved if they didn't come to Joseph for food. You don't come to Christ for food. You don't come to Christ for salvation. You'll starve of life in hell. Now we come to another son. I'm going through the whole chapter, so don't worry. We come to another son. Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. So Zebulun was given property on the Mediterranean Sea, and the descendants of Zebulun down through centuries were very successful in maritime commerce. 
They had ships. They had a great fishing business. And so this did come true. Zebulun prospered greatly from living near the Mediterranean shore. 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave of forced labor. So it's not criticism to say that Issachar was a raw-boned raw donkey. Donkeys were prized animals. That's the animal the king sat on when they rode, and people of, of means. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what did he ride in on? A gold chariot? A donkey. Because a donkey was what a king rode on. And here you have Issachar, who's a strong, prosperous man, and his descendants strong and prosperous, and they have used that strength to protect themselves to the point that they can lie down in peace between the sheepfolds. They're relaxed. They're in security. They're not threatened by their enemies. And that last sentence in verse 15 may mean that they were involved in the slave trade. Verse uh, 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Let you see if you can figure what he's talking about. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. Once you notice three things about Dan and tell me what he's talking about. Number one, Dan was famous for the administration of justice. It uh, had good judges, dealt out justice. Number two, he was like a horned snake, small, short. You barely see it on the path. But thirdly, even though it was small and you wouldn't expect anything of it, when it bit a horse's leg, the horse died and the rider fell over and was killed. Dan produced judges and was like a little horned snake. Wouldn't expect much from him. That little horned snake could kill things as large as horses. What judge came from the tribe of Dan? What judge single-handedly wiped out all the Philistines? Samson. Talking about Samson here. Samson's from the line of Dan. And God used Samson, just one man, single-handedly, to destroy all the Philistines. So, we'll stop here. But I hope you see that these prophecies all came true. They all came true because they caused to come true what they prophesied. Prophecy is not just a prediction. Prophecy is the word of God through the mouth of a prophet who causes things to happen. Nothing happens by accident. God does not just permit things to happen. God in Christ causes everything that happens to happen in your life. And the goal of his providence 
is this lion of the tribe of Judah who sits on his throne and causes all of the nations of the world to bow before him. Now, when God causes nations to bow before him, God uses instruments. You know what those instruments are? You and me. Now we know that evangelism is going to be successful and world missions is going to be successful and the Great Commission is going to be successful. Now we know that the nations and tribes are going to come to Christ. Some will resist, but not all. More and more people are going to come to Christ. To those that refuse to come, become an insignificant minority. You know Benjamin Warfield, who was one of the greatest Bible scholars that ever lived, died in 1921. He said something in one of his sermons. He said, I believe that the last generation of people on earth will all be elect. And that when Christ comes back, he'll come back to a world where every single person is a believer in him. Now, I'm not quite that optimistic. I would say he's coming back to a world when most people will be believing in him. He's not going to be coming back to a world where all his enemies are hating him. He's already destroyed them. That's what the Bible says. And he's coming back to a world that's full of Christians. And they've been full of, it's been full of Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the kind of world he's coming back to because he is the king. Is he the king of your life? submitted yourself to him? Have you surrendered every aspect of your life to him so that you're willing to do what he wants you to do, not what you want to do? Do you have the faith to believe that victory belongs to Christ and he is going to seize the throat of all of his enemies until they're all dead? And then he comes back and we glorify him. Not quite the same outlook that most Christians have today. But it is a liberating outlook because it is a true outlook. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you told, Jacob, through Jacob, you told his sons how things were going to be throughout the history of mankind. We thank you that with this knowledge, with this spiritual power, you use us in bringing more and more people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to you. Help us to believe these things, O Lord. Help us not to be defeatists or pessimists. But help us to believe these things and to act on them. For Christ's sake, amen.